Hi, this is Emma Gannon and welcome back to The Success Myth Diaries. This is a brand new mini-series to accompany my new book, The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All, which is out on May the 18th of this year. If you haven't already, go and check out the other episodes in this mini-series. But my book unpicks the eight success myths from happiness to money to celebrity to toxic productivity. And I'm looking at all the different ways that traditional success is constantly marketed to us, how to spot it, and also how to kind of realign ourselves with our own values and our own goals and make sure we're working towards something that we actually want rather than what society wants for us. To celebrate, I'm interviewing some of my favourite people about what success means to them. And today I've got the performance poet and author, Tim Clare. He's written two fantasy novels and non-fiction books, award-winning non-fiction books, should I say, including We Can't All Be Astronauts, which won Best Memoir at the East Anglian Book Awards, and Coward, a brilliant book out now on paperback about why we get anxious and what we can do about it. It's a really great book about anxiety and has helped me personally a lot. He's also the podcast host of Death of a Thousand Cuts, which is a podcast for readers and writers. So I think you'd like that too. In this episode, we discuss his three success myths around anxiety, achievement, and the myth of the finish line. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Tim. So I'm really excited. I've got the amazing author, Tim Clare, with me on the Success Myth Diaries. And I can't wait to talk to you about your success myths. But before we do, I just needed to say, because I've obviously posted it all over Twitter, but your book, Coward, which is out in paperback now, is fantastic. It's really funny. It's really well written and researched. And it kind of, on a personal note, got me out of a bit of a weird funk at the end of last year. So I just want to say thank you. Well, that's you're very welcome. That's obviously thrilling for me to not that you were in a weird funk, but that it, the other bit, the, the the upward climb. It's lovely to hear. Obviously, you know, you write stuff and you want it to reach people and for them to like it. So that's lovely. Thank you. Seriously, I was reading bits out loud to my husband, and I was like, "This is exactly what it feels like." And I think sometimes with anxiety, it just you just sometimes you just need to know that you're not completely losing it, and that other people have been through it, which they definitely have. Um, So if we talk about your first success myth, because it's kind of on this topic, the myth that you can cure your anxiety is an interesting one because obviously there are so many things sold to us. I mean, even in your book, there's a very funny chapter on something that you tried, which was like swallowing poo (laughs) from a stranger listeners are going to be like wow you've really jumped into a random bit of the book there but you've you've gone through this book basically sort of with this like investigative journalist lens of like trying to solve your own anxiety and I guess the point of the book is that we end up learning that we kind of have to embrace it but anyway over to you yeah, so I, it can seem a bit sort of miserableist to start to say, oh, you can't cure your anxiety because the obvious retort to anyone who's a sufferer of anxiety is, look, well, clearly there are people who are not as anxious as me. So that can't be true. But often we have this idea when you're like really anxious, we want ways out of it. And there's this idea that if we knew the right series of steps to take, if we had the right medication, if we did the right took the right treatment, we could come to some radical accommodation with our own fears and then just retire to Elysium, basically, and kick it with our feet up, um, never feeling worried or concerned again. It's odd to 
feel that that extreme, I think, as an anxiety sufferer. But you come to hate anxiety so much. The feelings it brings up in you, the powerlessness, the how it infantilizes you. You can be so reliant on other people, you don't feel like a grown-up. Um, that you can just be praying for something, sometimes literally, that is going to stop you feeling anxious. And the irony, the bitter irony, really, one of the biggest risk factors for disordered anxiety, anxiety that disrupts your life, stops you doing the things you want to do, makes you feel miserable, uh, is what they call anxiety sensitivity. So that's like the intolerance to the physical symptoms and thoughts associated with being anxious. So <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not just trying to be clever to come up with something, you know, counterintuitive that sounds good in a book, but genuinely, not only can you not cure anxiety, but one of the best ways to become increasingly unpleasantly anxious is to start looking for ways to stamp out anxiety in your life. It's, I would think of it like, have you, have you ever sat in the quiet coach on a train and suddenly the smallest noise that someone makes, the smallest like leaking from some headphones, the bit of chatter becomes like more irritating to you than it would normally. Like it becomes hyper salient. Anything. You, I, I, I sometimes have sat in those coaches and become like the worst person ever the most like horrible stereotype of like a middle class british busybody kind of like oh did you your mind i'm trying to what are you trying to do tim what nothing nothing important that means i couldn't deal with someone being you know take ha taking a phone call briefly it doesn't really bother me but in that moment i feel desperately it's like an impingement on every part of the little fortress that is me and when you move towards trying to get rid of anxiety when you're told you have an anxiety disorder when you start to feel it's taking over your life you start to become hyper vigilant for signs of that you're feeling anxious which makes it loads worse yes because this is what i've really got from the book and also has just really helped me in general is it's like that acceptance and i feel like that sort of comes across in many different ways. Our contentment with who we are can come from the acceptance of who we are. And now I still have all the same symptoms, anxiety, but I'm more aware of them. It's almost like there's a floating like third person in front of me that's like, oh, you're doing that thing again. You, you know, I'm about to go on a flight in a few days and I'm getting the same physical symptoms. I know what it is now and I know that I'll be fine and I know that I'll get on the flight and I know that I'll probably feel really shit and I'll, and I'll land. And like, I know now that it's not gonna kill me. If you had told me in the depths of my anxiety, oh, just don't, just don't, just accept it. Don't, just don't be bothered by it. I would have given you a two word answer right yeah. i would it, it feels like it feels like a non-answer to say just accept it because people can go how and the how of course is a lot of it but what i would almost liken it to to use a sort of a bad analogy that i'm making up on the fly is if you imagine that um you're sort of in bed at night and you hear some sort of scratching and movement from outside the house, some noise on the gravel or whatever, your response to that 
sound is going to be very different from if you've just gone to bed and there's been like a news report saying that there's a, a serial killer on the loose in the in your neighborhood versus if you own a cat right like like the, it's the same data that's coming in the same sensory data um but it's the, the meaning of it is different in those two scenarios now that's a silly example but one would produce incredible discomfort and fear and unpleasant feelings and it would be horrible and in the other the cat situation i didn't need to distinguish between those people understood that which one was the better one um you wouldn't be bothered about it you'd be like in fact you might feel pleased you might be like oh my cat's coming in and i think you can have a racing heart you can have a churning stomach and not only can that not be unpleasant we can sometimes interpret those go i'm excited you know, there's an interpretive lens, a top-down process that goes into emotions. In fact, there's no real evidence that there's natural categories of emotion that aren't in some way mediated by our culture, our experience. You know, there's always a rational person going, what am I feeling and putting a name to it? And, um, and, and, and what we are feeling is often ambiguous. And there's different ways of interpreting what we're feeling, the emotion we're feeling and what that means. And, you know, if you're a man and you uh, subscribe to like very traditional masculine values, the idea of being afraid can be like deeply embarrassing, deeply unpleasant, deeply almost like a humiliation. And in fact, there's studies to show that men who subscribe to traditional kind of masculine roles and values get worse more intent and more likely to get PTSD and get worse PTSD symptoms when they do. Um, and, and that's no accident because the idea of even being afraid can be sort of a deeply distasteful thing. Something that I have written about is that it's a myth that you have to be like mentally completely well and a hundred percent at all times to be successful. And I feel like what I really got from your book is you are, you are a really successful writer. Your book is really, really good. And I, and yet you were, su you were suffering so, so much. And of course it's ongoing and yet you're still able to write. You're still, you're still able to do so much. Like that. I do think there is this weird myth still that if you have something like anxiety, it will stop you from doing the things you want to do. And clearly it doesn't. There's a lovely line in Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, where like a butler in this kind of old timey world uh, sees another butler and thinks the butler's tired because he's been being spirited off to a fairy realm at night. But the other butler doesn't realise this and thinks thinks he's got depression. And there's a lovely line where he, the butler goes up to him and like gives him a little, you know, handshake or like little nod. And it says, recognizing in him a fellow in the Freemasonry of melancholy. And, 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 and there is something that happens when you're able to be open about your anxiety. And to a certain extent, I didn't have a choice. I don't think I would have done voluntarily, but like I, I was, it disrupted enough of my life that I couldn't hide it anymore that just a load of people will quietly come up to you and go, yeah, no, I feel exactly the same way. I've been feeling that way this week. I went through this a while ago. And people that you would never have guessed suddenly start and you go, what? No, because you're very together. I've <laughs> seen your Instagram posts. <laughs> and, 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 and so what I would say is immediately you realise that our for-consumption public personas 
don't match up with the prevalence of anxiety. And there's a, there's still like things have got so much better. Uh, the stigma about it is so much lessened. I really don't want to disavow how much better we've got about talking as a society about mental health issues, but still there is still a great conspiracy of silence about it Mm-mm. because people are scared. Uh, they're going to be unmasked and revealed to be the only ones not adulting properly. And so, yeah, I would say like you can keep going and you do keep going. And, um, and the more, so I know it's a paradox, right? But like the more you can accept it, certainly the quicker that you, rec- I recover from it, the less of a dent it makes in my identity. And the more I can just kind of get on, cause I have, you know, I have done a bunch of stuff and really enjoyed it. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's the thing really is, is, is not trying to waste my life, trying to stamp out every trace of anxiety, sort of like an obsessive cleaning of myself. Yes, yes, that makes so much sense. Before we move on, I just want to say this though, just because just it, I feel like it's important maybe to distinguish. So obviously, I completely agree, you can't cure something like that because it paradoxically makes it worse. But what would you say about about the fact that anxiety can like flare up if you're in situations that actually maybe are detrimental, as in, and this might just be me, but when I stopped hanging out with like certain people and taking on maybe things that were not so great um, in, in work context, my anxiety did lessen a little bit. What are your thoughts on like it being helpful in a weird way? Yes, I mean, I, I would say a hundred percent, and 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 this is, but this is about coming to an accommodation where you don't see it as the enemy. Because when you do, I would not be able to say no to anyone because I was terrified, and also I'd be like, oh, that's just my anxiety. I constantly don't want to do things. I don't want to go out. I don't want to say yes to anything, and that actually, I, I, paradoxically, I used to get into, I used to do a lot of kind of high risk things and risk-taking behaviors and sometimes it's good it meant i could do gigs performing to large audiences and that didn't feel meaningfully more stressful to me than making my breakfast in the morning like because i was just at such a, a fever pitch but you lose your ability to check in with your intuition because everything's horrible and i think being able to kind of come back to your anxiety as a kind of ally and friend um actually allows you to do those things where you can you can i mean you can certainly step in and go do i want to do like on what basis am i making this prediction do i want to do it am i just worried someone's going to be annoyed at me maybe that's not a good reason to stop doing things you know anxiety can pull both ways you know it can be you can be a people pleaser and be anxious that people will be oh gosh I still get anxious now, but maybe don't listen to it as much. That feeling, is someone annoyed at me? Are they, and you have to kind of go, well, if they are, is, is that a reasonable way for them to feel? Do I, <laughs> and often the answer is no. Do I think that would make them a nice person if I did, said I couldn't come out tonight? Uh, and they, and they go, what? And they hate me? Like, is that, no, it wouldn't. So, but, but by sort of repairing your relationship with anxiety, uh, which doesn't mean not feeling anxious. And it doesn't mean that sometimes I'm not, uh, you know, kind of bag of nerves and, and, and acting in a ridiculous way. Um, but by repairing that relationship, actually, I think you're able to be more in tune with those moments where you have to listen to the little warnings it's giving you and go, okay, is this, 
you know, what's in my best interest. So yeah, I totally agree that it, and, and you want to be able to use it, not just have it because a car alarm's no good if it's just going off all the time. You just yeah. tune it out eventually. And so that's what you need from it. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I honestly, I just love your book. Everyone listening, I please go and buy it, even if you don't have anxiety, because someone in your life probably might or or you might in the future or whatever. It's like for everyone. Um, but also it's just so funny. Like I know maybe I I feel like it's okay to say that, that like sometimes anxiety can be funny because you listen to the ridiculousness of yourself sometimes. When we went to look around our house years ago, when me and my wife were going to buy a house, I was so terrified. I hated moving and I'd been crying. And eventually I took a little, I had a little stuffed lion and I, and I like had it and it would like seem to comfort me as a grown man. Right. And so I took it and I, put it under my armpit inside my coat and I'd been hugging it in the car and I forgot to take it out and it was only when the agent had shown us around the whole house that I realised I'd done the whole thing with like a stuffed lion under my in the in, under my arm just looking with me and it, that that is inherent like I think that is yeah I can't that's say brilliant. that's not funny <laughs> oh so good Right. Okay. On to your next success myth, which is um, kind of around work, I suppose, now that the the next two are. The myth that you can reach the finish line. So obviously you've been working as a writer for a long time and of course you can finish projects, but would you be able to talk a bit about that, about how it seemingly does keep moving and, and also how you sort of handle that um, and try, and how you kind of feel successful in your day to day if you know it's always going to move? You know, there's like, there's a line in... Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Well, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is technically the name of the movie. Right at the end, he says, spoiler alert, he says, uh, Charlie, do you know what happened to the man who got what he always wanted? And Charlie says no. And then Willy Wonka said he lived happily ever after. But to me, that line fills me with terror because the man who got... <laughs> My reply to that would be he realised that the things he thought would solve the problems in his life were actually only postponing them and he had nothing <laughs> he had nothing to work for and he had to suddenly face the great uh, vacant emptiness in his own soul right like for me like the, the the thing about like writing a book is you are constantly thinking how many words have i got to the end how when am i going to be finished with this you know what's my deadline that i've got to meet to finish this book and and and, and we can get very very Sort of thinking, God, when I finish this, God, it's going to be so good when I've signed off on this, when I finally completed this, this story or this non-fiction book and it will be completed and I'll have a finished and bound book. And wow, won't that be lovely? And then you get close to the end. And I've done sometimes started feeling something that I've realized is very close to grief. That I, oh, like you're saying this is the last round of edits and then we're going to send it to the printers. Wait, 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 wait. And I, and I don't want to give it away. And it's not just anxiety about getting it perfect. It, when I write, you know, fiction, I don't want to sound too precious, but I, I, I don't write about stuff I don't care about. I write about worlds that I kind of want to hang out in. And suddenly those characters cool from the kind of molten, flowing 
living world where they can do what I, they can say what I want them to say and they can do what they want to do. That possibility calls into kind of like a lasting monument. And then I'm ejected from that world and I can't live there anymore. I can't play in it. Even if it's nonfiction, while I'm writing it, I can find something, a fact online and go, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to put that in a footnote and then my editor's going to ask me to remove that later because they don't like footnotes. But I get so excited or I can put that in or, oh, who could I talk to? I could talk to this person. I think they'll be really interesting. And 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 actually, I realised that all the fun of it is in the doing. Not And gosh, I mean, I know that we end up in a banal place of me just talking about it's about the journey, not the destination. But I lose sight of that so much. And, and, and here's what happens when you finish a novel. You hand it in and immediately you get you can now move on to your next project, all the things you've wanted to do for ages. So you kind of hit what you think is the finishing tape of that finishing line and you're immediately squirted out into the starting blocks of the next race uh, of like, what's my next book going to be? And I've done nothing. So actually you immediately go for what you think will be a moment of kind of triumph and completion is actually a moment of now I go back to 0% complete. When I was close to finishing that book, I felt like finally it was an area that I knew really well. I was kind of an expert on how to write that book. Now I know nothing. So interesting. And this is why we talk about like difficult second album, difficult second book syndrome, because people don't realize what that's going to feel like. And it's, it, if you haven't written a book, it's the least sympathetic problem in the world, right? Oh, you're not going to be able to, it's difficult to write your second one. I'm not saying it's the worst thing to happen, but if like me, you grew up thinking, I want to be a writer, you know, we, we say that writers have got great imagination, but I wanted to write stories. I, that when I was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? At five, I said, I'd like to be a writer. And I never had the imagination to think of a better answer, like I genuinely never thought. And, and, and so it wasn't just, you know, it's my identity. And then you finish a book and then you just popped out into, well, you've got to do another one now. When you finish, you've got to do the next thing. Like there's no, there's no end, <laughs> there's no end yeah, to it. But I right? think it's important to share, isn't it? Cause it's not, it's not a depressing thing. It's just a realistic thing, which is, I think we need to talk about it because if we tell like young people, for example, like you get to do one thing and then you get your own cloud nine forever, then that's not helping them. Like that's not being realistic. And I think now you, you know, treating it as like an ongoing job, you know, we need to, we, we need to talk about it. Also, the thing that is most likely to get like the reward of finishing, even if you experience that moment, as a glorious union with the universe, even if like you do it and like the, the heavens part and a sunbeam descends and illuminates you and you're sort of like you are crowned in a nimbus of light and you rise up and choirs sing in that moment where you write the end or whatever, however you finish it. And I'll tell you what will happen if you, the moment you send it to your agent, you will notice three spelling errors. <laughs> but, um, but, but even if you experience that as glorious, um, that's, you're going to get that moment maybe like a dozen times in your life. That doesn't seem like a good way to structure your life uh, around 12 brief moments of ecstasy. And actually what keeps me going, and I don't always experience it, but I did experience it yesterday, 
it's just the joy of being in the moment of writing a bit and it going and you're just going, I like this and I like putting this sentence here and this is funny and I'm going to look something up and that's a cool thing I can add. Uh, oh, I like this silly joke I've put in. Those, that's the pleasure of that. That's the juice for me. And that is available. That is available to, that is available at the start of your career. That is available when I've gone in and taught year two classes on writing. That joy of writing is available to them then. And it is available to you all your life. And it is never going to be contingent on what some upper middle class editor thinks is important for the world to hear and wants to pay for. It's not going to be contingent on what award panels think, uh, you know, books should, what books should be rewarded. It's not going to be contingent on you even finishing your book, which is another thing that is really difficult is this idea. Why, if I'm not confident I can finish my book, why should I put in effort today? Because this is all wasted. And maybe it's the kindest thing is to give up now rather than wasting hours and hours and hours. Why don't I just do something that's kinder to myself? Well, if you are able to just go, this is the juice like of, of just going, what am I, I'm going to make these two. If you're a romance novelist, I'm going to make these two characters nearly kiss and then not. If you can love that, you're so much more likely to finish. Again, it's a tension and an irony. And I think reframing the idea of things being wasted, like I, I totally agree. I mean, I've rewritten my my novel that I still haven't finished so many times and I could look back and be really gutted about it and be like, I've wasted years on a book that has basically been deleted and rewritten. But actually, I know it's cliche, but like the journey does count because I think I've become a better writer. I've enjoyed every draft, like that's not wasted, even though they're not going to be published, I still enjoyed it. And also, I just feel like I've realised that the process can be really long winded, and I'm still going to show up, I'm still going to keep going. And that's the beauty of it, really. Yeah. And, you know, ask, tell me all this on a, on a, um, on a difficult writing day, and I probably will be less receptive to it. <laughs> I, I get that, right? I, I, I don't want to be sort of twee and air punchy about it. But I, I just think, Emma, like, you, you must, like, there'll be characters in the book you're writing that you care about a lot. And the door to Narnia will close forever the moment you finish that novel. You, you won't be able to, tell us what they you won't be able to put words in their mouth you won't be able to say what they're dressing you won't be able to hang out with them anymore though you'll, you'll be giving them out to other people and they'll be gone this is how i got through the sort of 4 a.m pacing up and down with my daughter when she was a baby and she couldn't sleep and it genuinely helped it was like one day i'm gonna i would do anything to be able to go back and have her on my arm and it won't be available because she'll be off having her own adventures and being independent. And so to want to rush through this, uh, is, 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 is just insanity from my future perspective. And it's the same with books. Like if you want to be a writer, then we have to write. Writing is not climbing into the author clown suit and going on you know, and going to hay and why and answering questions and sounding clever. We might feel most rightly when we do that, but the juice is making characters do things, you know, and making words work harder than they normally would. Yeah. Oh, thank you so, so much. I'm going to remember that. That's really, really helpful. Um, okay. So your final success myth is really, really interesting one. Um, the myth that achievement makes you valuable. And obviously this is a really deeply ingrained belief that people have that you are more valuable if you have X, Y, and Z. You um, you mentioned about your course, your writing course that has reached over 20,000 people and 
you've seen that side of it where you have achieved something that outwardly looks very shiny. You're saying here that inherently we're all valuable as we are. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It was hard for me to like myself for a long, long time. And it's still, these things are always a negotiation and an ongoing process. It never ends. The it's, it's managed, not cured. But for me, the idea that my value was tied to my writing, it was seductive because writing was something I'd been told I could do well. And I'm like, right, okay. And it's something I can probably get better at and it will please people. And so if I do it well, I'm going to be able to earn people liking me. And I couldn't really believe that there was anything worthwhile in me, that I was inherently valuable, but I could accept that I could probably do something well. And so it was a way of me going, okay, so there's a path to your being accepted. And maybe you'll accept yourself at that point when you've written your book. You'll go, ah, well, well, the reason you're feeling complete and unhappy and like you're not worth anything is actually because your destiny is to be a writer. That's what you were put on this earth to do. And if you fulfill that destiny, then it will feel like a kind of key slipping into a, a lock. That missing puzzle piece will be there. And finally, you'll feel kind of complete. There is no upper limit to success as a, as a writer. You just chunk up to the next league and suddenly you're at the bottom of that league. So it's a bit to do with what we're talking about uh, in the previous one. But also... I know of loads of successful writers. They're not acquaintances, but I think we can all think of people who've written novels that have done very well or been very successful in business or been very successful in politics. I think is probably the easiest one for people to think of that we do not think of as being particularly great people uh, in our estimation. And we wouldn't think of as more valuable than, say, our partner who might be less successful in politics than them. My partner is less successful in book writing than me. I don't think I don't look at my wife and go, well, what novels have you put out? It would never occur to me in a million years to judge her on that metric. What a, what a stupid thing. I don't look at any of my friends and go. I mean, some of them are much more successful writers than me, unfortunately, um, but, <laughs> but but they don't have the rich inner life that I do. No, but seriously, I don't ever look at anyone around me and go, well, how? How's your year been in your career? I do exactly. absolutely bananas. Yeah. And we're so and, harsh and, on ourselves. Yeah, and none of my friends give a monkeys. It's it's so silly. And actually probably th at the point I'm most obnoxious and and least good company is when I'm very big into uh my idea of myself as qua writer you know that I, I think i'm probably insufferable at those moments where i'm like oh yeah just been doing some writing like what an idiot and, and and so for me what's important is i see all these people who i've taught creative writing who or you know they've read they've listened to stuff i've produced and then they write to me with their experience of writing who really feel like if they could only write something good then they'll feel good about themselves. They'll feel like they've achieved something. They'll achieve that, feel that they are uh, have permission mm. to be writers. They'll feel, I think Amanda Palmer talked about, I paraphrase as being sort of like doinked on the head with the magic wand of legitimacy. But there's this idea that they'll have been upgraded to being a writer with a capital W. And then that will make them into a proper, a real boy. <laughs> like yeah. they, And, yeah. and um, no, 
like one uh, whenever you sort of like start moving in a sort of scene or circle or you hang out with other writers or poets or whatever you, you get a massively inflated idea of whatever the thing you want to do is cultural currency within the wider world like most people just don't care and uh, secondly i just think you are inherently valuable for being a person we don't like you don't like look at a baby and go well what have they done like that would be that would be absolutely deranged you know you don't get a five-year-old and go look uh you've been living in this under my roof for five years i think it's high time you find yourself a profession it's deranged and there are you know there are cultural attitudes and there are parents who kind of go you know what's my child gonna do when they grow up and and we can absorb that and inherit that and get this idea that you need to be a, a you know a, a, a lawyer a, a doctor a surgeon whatever all of which are hugely valuable professions i should say but they don't make you valuable you can't increase your value one iota by anything you do all the sort of worst totalitarian ideologies from history have been based on the idea that people are not inherently valuable, that there are some people who don't meet that standard. Well, I'm not frowning, quite frowning at writers or people in general and saying, you know, don't be a fascist. I, I kind of want to gently nudge people away from the idea that you are less valuable than someone else because you haven't sold a certain quantity of books or you haven't been promoted this year or whatever because that is a really really bad road to start going down if you accept that logic is true i absolutely love that and i and i do think obviously people with lower self-worth for example you know when you look at the data like they do end up in more sort of high status positions or they are clambering for fame or or notoriety sometimes because they are filling a void of like i'm not valuable i must do something of value to be loved or and it's, it feels conditional to them. I just wanted to end on a more practical note for people who are listening, because I still fall into this when I'm having a bad day, where I think, oh, nothing, you know, nothing's going that well, and no one cares, and all that stuff. On those days, how do you remind yourself that you are valuable? You mentioned in your answer about, you know, the joy and pleasure from a swim or listening to music or having a coffee with a friend. Do you live that out? And does that work on those days? Oh, like I would say I frequently fail at all of these things. I've flunked the school of life multiple times and I will continue to do so until possibly my deathbed. I will, you know, be, be nervous or grump or snap at someone or something like that. I think we've got to like be very forgiving of ourselves is a good start because otherwise you'll start setting the standard higher and higher. And I spoke to a great guy um, called Dr. Tim Pitchell who studies procrastination. He works at like I think it's called like the Institute of Procrastination or something like that in a way that always makes people laugh. But he talked about, you know, he talks about what's the next good thing for me to do. Like, what, and, and often that is something as mundane as like, I need to open my laptop. I'm not going to be able to do any work today unless I've switched my laptop on. Um, so rather than thinking about like high end kind of conceptual goals, like who do I want to be? How can I be happy? It's like, well, what's one thing that I can do now? And sometimes for me, that'll be like taking a cold shower. Often it'll be just like emptying the dishwasher and <laughs> refilling it. It's often starting really dumb and small. And like I write like a little to do list for myself and then the things are out of my head. They're almost like embarrassingly basic things 
and the big stuff will kind of work itself out. Oh, so good. And it's so funny, isn't it, that we sort of learn how to kind of parent ourselves, don't we? Like, time to go to bed, have an early night. And it, <laughs> yeah, it, wor- yeah. it works. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Thank you so, so much, Tim. That was really great. And yeah, I know we went on a whistle-stop tour, but um, I would actually love to point people in the direction of your podcast and also let us know where else to find you. Yeah, so um, my podcast is called uh, Death of a Thousand Cuts, and it's a podcast for writers, for readers, and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. Um, and you can just find that if you search for Death of a Thousand Cuts. And uh, it's also on my uh, SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Claire. So, and, and in every kind of like pod catchy place. Um, those are the best places to look for me. I am on Twitter, but I tend to just be say, be just, uh, rambling in uh, a way that I, I think is probably not the most valuable, uh, I love uh it. of my work. I, Thank the, you. It's <laughs> like the old, the old, uh, the old fashioned way of using Twitter, which I love. Writers just, yeah, chatting. Um, so long live that as much as it can. Um, and also Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It is out in paperback now. And I'm very flattered to have my quote on the front because thank you so like much. I said, I loved it so much. So yeah, thank you so, so much. 